Welcome to the Beef Brunch Educational Series podcast, bringing you information on cattle production and management in Louisiana and surrounding states. All right, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining this morning's Beef Brunch Educational Series webinar. My name is Ashley Edwards, and I'm an Assistant Extension Agent and Coordinator of Animal Science Programs for the LSU Ag Center. I will be hosting today with the help of Jason Holmes, Livestock Specialist in the Northeast Region. Our speaker today is Dr. Guillermo Scaglia. He will be talking about grazing nutrition for beef cattle. A few housekeeping notes before we get started. We will be muting your microphones. We ask that you please keep them muted throughout the entire webinar. If you are joining us online via the Teams app or link, please enter your questions into the Q&A box at any time during the presentation. If you are calling in, you can text your questions to me. My number is 512-818-5476. Again, if you're joining us on the phone, you can send your questions to me. My number is 512-818-5476. In the interest of time, we will wait to answer any of your questions until the end of the presentation. With that, Dr. Scaglia, thank you for taking the time to be with us this morning. You should be able to unmute your microphone and begin whenever you're ready. Well, uh, good morning. Thank you, Dr. Edwards, for the for the introduction. Um, as uh, Dr. Edwards was mentioning, I'm going to be talking about uh, grazing uh, nutrition. If I can actually move my slides. There you go. Um, in this presentation, I, I'll, I'll try to cover some of the uh, most of the forages that we have available here in uh, Louisiana. Talk about uh, forage chemistry and nutritive value, um, how these uh, forages can uh, match the animal requirements that we have in your in our farm. I would like to uh, start uh, thinking about year-round forage systems, and for you to to do the same. Um, I'm going to show you a, 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 an, an experiment that I that I did dealing with the annual ryegrass and uh, and handling stocking rate. We are in Louisiana, so I'm going to talk about heat stress and nutrition, then supplementation principles, uh, the use of brassicas in your in your system, and a few uh, final thoughts. Um, as we know, um, the main probably one of the most important group of forages that we have are the warm season perennial grasses like Bermuda grass, Bahia grass. Uh, we can, uh, during the winter, we can plant, we can use uh, small grains as well as annual ryegrass. And in some part of, uh, of Louisiana, especially in the north, uh, tall fescue can be used also in, uh, in the uh, grazing systems. Now, even though I present them like this, not all of them, with, not, all, not all of them are the same. Uh, the, we are not talking about the same quality in warm season perennial grasses than in winter annuals. And, of, and even within groups, uh, we are not talking also about the same, the same uh, amount of forage production or quality. Uh, this slide just represents a few of the cultivars of annual ryegrass um, and the average production of uh, three years across three locations in Louisiana. Uh, those in uh, blue bars are actually accepted for uh, for use. Uh, the last two, Gulf and Jackson, uh, fell below um, the values that were needed in order to be uh, recommended. What I'm using, what I'm saying with this is, not all cultivars uh, produce the same, and even 
uh, not all cultivars produce the same across uh, across locations. Uh, this publication right here um, that were distributed recently can give you a lot more details about uh, about these. In terms of the um, one season perennials, it happened happened basically the same. The first two bars uh, represent Bermuda grass, Tifton 85 and coastal. Um, Tifton produces more than coastal. Then we have the Bahia grass in blue. The Bahia grass in general also produce less than Bermuda grasses. And within Bahia grasses, we also have differences due, due to uh, cultivars. So what I'm saying is, yes, we can be using Bermuda grass, but depending on the cultivars that we use, we will be we will, should be able to produce less or more uh, forage. A little bit about uh, forage chemistry. After all, we are talking about nutrition. Uh, the big groups of uh, nutrients are the non-structural carbohydrates, sugars or starch, the structural carbohydrates, protein, fats, and ash. Ash represented by minerals. Uh, fats, they're very little, 2-3%, they are is negligible from the standpoint of nutrition. But the, but the two probably groups that I want more, or the three groups that I'm most interested in for you to, uh, to pay attention to are the sugars or starch. They are inside the, the cell of the plant and they are readily ready, ready available for, uh, for use by the rumen microbes. The structural carbohydrates are the ones that are in the cell wall. And basically, you have heard, if you have done analysis of hay or forages, neutral detergent fiber, NDF, is the cellulose, semicellulose, and lignin, lignin fraction, while ADF, or acid detergent fiber, are the cellulose and lignin. Uh, those are pretty important, and we are going to discuss the, their importance in a minute. And then, you, of course, you have the proteins. Now, when you look at the, at the, at the whole plant, um, you have the leaves and the stems, uh, in general, leaves are much better quality than stems, um, lower fiber fractions, NDF and ADF, and higher uh, crude protein content. And as I said before, the sugars are in the in, inside the plant cell at 100% digestible. However, NDF mainly, neutral, neutral, neutral detergent fiber present in the cell wall, uh, depending on a few things, it can be uh, between 20 to 60% digestible. Now, uh, all forages, any of the forages, uh, it's, it's not the same when it's growing as when it is mature in terms of, uh, in terms of quality. When the forage is immature, that is, it's leafy, uh, there is a very little or small proportion of stem, is, there is a high concentration of minerals, there are a lot of leaves, and there is a high concentration of protein. That means that there is a high leaf-stem ratio, high protein concentration, and high digestibility, meaning that the microbes can digest that plant really, really quickly and, and nearly totally since, uh, since it's highly digestible. However, as the plant grows, and again, this is for grasses, legumes, the mineral concentration decreases, the protein decreases, and the percent leaves also decreases. On the other hand, fiber, remember, NDF and ADF will go up, and the percent stems will also go up. This will make the low leaf stem ratio, stem ratio uh, low, low protein and low digestibility. So it's not the same, the quality of a mature grass or legume than uh, immature, uh, the same in grass or, or uh, legume in the immature stage. There is also differences within uh, a, a grass or within a, a, um, a, specific, a specific forages. And we have, for example, in this uh, table, the differences between coastal Bermuda grass and Tifton 85 Bermuda grass. 
In this experiment, they cut coastal and chieftain at three weeks um, of uh, stage of stage growth and six uh, week, both grass, both uh, varieties. They, they did the analysis and they have a really similar NDF, neutral detergent fiber. Remember cellulose, hemicellulose and lignin. However, even though you can say, OK, Coastland Tifton 85 are really the same in, ter in terms of NDF, the digestibility, meaning how much that, that uh, dry matter in this case can be digested, there is a 10 point differences, 51 versus 61 in, in favor of Tifton 85. And even if you go into NDF digestibility, you see a 20 point difference in favor of Tifton 85. That means what I'm saying is, even though they have the same NDF concentration, the digestibility of that fraction is much greater in Tifton 85, which make basically this Bermuda grass much better quality than coastal. We did here at Iberia Station uh, an evaluation of three uh, cultivars of, um, of Bermuda grass, Alicia, Jigs, and Tifton 85, and we actually got um, we actually got. Uh, big differences, uh, what can be considered a big difference in terms of percent lignin. Alicia has much more lignin than, or had more lignin than uh, Jigs and Tifton 85. As we are going to see later, this impacted uh, animal production or animal response to grazing those three. So again, even though they are all Bermuda grasses, they are not the same quality. Now, why it's important to talk about different nutritive value factors is, is because they are related to what the animal can do uh, with that with that forage. Neutral detergent fiber is negatively correlated with intake, which means that the higher the NDF of the grass or the legume, the lower the intake is going to be uh, of, of any for any particular animal uh, consuming that grass or legume. The acid detergent fiber is related with negatively related with digestibility, which means the higher the ADF the lower the digestibility will be or the poor quality that grass or legume will be. In terms of protein, we can talk about the concentration of protein and say this is great, this is medium and this is poor. More than 13% crude protein in any forage is, is an excellent concentration of protein. Medium will be 7 to 12 and poor below, will be below uh, 6%. Now, we are talking about ruminants, so I always I'll always uh, say the same in, in my talks. Remember that you are feeding first the rumen microbes, then you are feeding the ruminant, the cow, the calf, whatever, whatever it is. So the rumen microbes are the ones that really need to be happy in order for them to be capable of digesting the feedstuff that the animal that the animal consumes. In order for them to be um, to be uh, uh, efficient in, in digesting uh, the cellulose and the hemicellulose and all of the other fractions in the in the forages, they need to have uh, an amount of, of crude protein, uh, meaning forage crude protein content of at least 8%. Below that value, below 8%, as you can see, there is a, there is a direct relationship between uh, forage dry matter intake and the forage crude protein content, meaning as protein in the forage increases up to 8%, intake also increases. Once the level of crude protein reach 8%, there is kind of a plateau. And actually, if you go to higher values of uh, crude protein content, you actually have that, for example, let's say this is a 15% crude protein content. You may find dry matter intake that is around 2% body weight, but at the same time with a very similar protein content of around, you can find also three 
or three and a quarter percent uh, body weight. So this means that protein is not limited, but if there is some other factor that is limiting um, the intake, and, and that can be fiber and can be some other um, some other issues there. But again, remember you are first feeding the rumen microbes before feeding cattle. I had a, a few questions uh, uh, actually uh, not, not too long ago about, about, okay, what do you mean by um, digestibility or quality of the, of the hay or the forage uh, related with intake? I think this table reflects what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say. When you have a high digestibility, meaning the microbes can digest basically all the forage that the animal is consuming, for example, in a lush pasture, with a value, let's say, to give a number more than 65%, that's when intake is probably uh, maximized. You can expect the animal to eat two, two and three quarters to three and a half percent body weight. On a moderate quality pasture, let's say 60% digestibility, the animal can eat less, two and a half, 3.2. And then you have grass hay, good quality, moderate, poor quality, and of course, digestibility goes down accordingly. So a good quality hay with a 50% digestibility, the animal cannot eat more than two and a half and it's probably close to two. While with poor quality hay, 40% digestibility, the animal can only eat between one to one and a half. If you feed animal straw, which you can do, has low digestibility, the animal will consume less than um, less than 1% um, of, the, of the body weight. So basically what I'm saying is, as the digestibility goes down, it means that the microbes cannot eat everything, you know, all the, or digest all the cellulose that is present in the rumen. And the quality, and what happens is that the rumen becomes what we call impacted. It means that the hay, let's say the poor quality grass hay, stay for too long in the rumen. And so basically the animal feels like, like he, he or she is full and they want it they want it more they don't need to eat more or they think they don't need to eat more because that hay is still um in the room and that's hence the reduction in intake uh as digestibility also decreases if we are talking about uh grazing nutrition or grazing we need to talk no matter what about stocking rate which is basically the most important variable that you can actually control in order to make a better efficient use of your pastures and hopefully uh, better um, reaching the objectives in terms of animal, of animal performance. Um, so this is this graph in the uh, below the, the x axis you have stocking rate and increases from left uh, left to right. Uh, this this uh, line is the gain uh, per animal pounds per animal is higher when you have low stocking rate and it becomes to go down and becomes really really uh, uh, poor when you have too many animals per acre. The gain per acre actually has a bell-shaped uh, curve. Uh, it's low at low stocking rate. It goes up up to a point and then start decreasing uh, as stocking rate continues to increase. So you basically, uh, long story short, you don't want to be on those sides of the of the graph. Um, in one side you are undergrazing the pasture. On the other side you are overgrazing the pasture. So what you really would prefer to be is in the optimum range of uh, stocking rate. It's easy to say, it's not too easy to do in, in, in real life. That optimum range, depending on the pasture condition, it will move to the right, to the left. Uh, but what, what I can tell you is that it usually is not when, uh, that optimum range is not when you maximize any of the two. It's not when you maximize gain per animal and it's not when you maximize gain per acre. It's somewhere, uh, it's somewhere actually in the middle. 
and that's the that's the beauty of grazing uh, where um, i mean management and on daily management probably it's uh, is the secret to uh, success i mentioned before that forage quality affects intake well forage mass or forage available also affects intake this is a uh, this is a theoretical um, relative intake uh, curve where you can expect this is 100% um, you can expect 100% of the potential intake at a certain point. And, and for the sake of, the, of this presentation, we assume that that 100% is at 2,000 pounds of dry matter uh, per acre. Well, a 1,200-pound cow can actually eat around two and a half, let's say that he can, she can eat around 2.5% body weight, which means that she can eat 30 pounds of dry matter per day. However, the same cow, the same, the same forage, if there is 1,000 pounds available, Per acre, then she can only eat 75% of, of the potential intake of, of the animal. And this is about give or take around 19 pounds uh, per, of dry matter per day. So forage mass, how much forage is out there is actually affecting how much the animal also can consume. We talk about uh, what affects intake. We talk about quality and, and, uh, of forages and forage, forage mass. Now we move to the other side and, and we talk about nutrient requirements of the animals. Uh, this table, there is a lot of numbers, uh, is for wing heifer uh, calves. The only point or the couple of points that I want to say is we have the heifers here, me medium frame, large frame and different body weights uh, the, uh, within, um, within frame. Long story short, my point is the following. Um, if you compare medium frame, 500 pound heifer with large frame, 500 pound also the same weight, but different frame, dry matter intake, protein requirements and calcium requirements increase in the large frame heifer compared with the medium frame. Similarly, when you compare within frame, in this case, large frame heifers, 600, uh, 600 pounds versus 700 pounds, dry matter intake, protein needs, TDN or energy requirements, calcium and phosphorus increase for the 700 pound large frame heifer compared with the 600 pound heifer. So knowing what you have, the type of animal you have, you, you, you need to, to, to know that in order to know the requirements that the animal actually has. These are the nutrient requirements for a, for a cow. Uh, let's assume that the cow give us, you know, a, a calf every year. So the relative requirements of energy and protein are depicted in this uh, in this figure. We have a Calvin at this point on the left uh, on the left corner. As you can see, the energy and protein requirements increase drastically uh, in the first two to three months, and this is this is due to uh, lactation. Lactation demands a lot of nutrients. Uh, the cow needs a lot of uh, of many different nutrients in order to produce milk. Now that peak over there, it will depends on on the cows you have. If they are, if they produce a lot of milk, this peak will go up here. If you produce little milk, that peak will go down here. So milk production affects how much nutrients the animal the animal needs. After the peak of lactation, start to goes down, and actually the time of minimum requirements for the animal is around um, is around weaning. At that point, is uh, as I said, lower requirements. Uh, in this case, we are talking about protein and energy, but in the last third of gestation, the requirements go up really quickly up to Calvin, and then we start again on this side and goes up due to uh, lactation. So again, this is a, a one cow 
that through the year have different requirements for nutrients depending on what physiological and on which physiological stage uh, she is. That's another thing to consider whenever we are uh, feeding cattle. This, this graph tries to put together uh, requirements and um, quality of the different uh, forage groups. We have from left to right, uh, warm season perennials, bahia grass and Bermuda grass, warm season annuals, Sudan grass, for example, cool season perennials, tall fescue, cool season annuals, uh, and legumes. So from left to right, the quality goes up. The bars, what basically what reflects is uh, each of the bars, the lower, the lower point is the moment of lower quality of that particular group of grasses, and the top is basically the best uh, situation that you can find it. So if you plug in the requirements for first calf heifers, cow calf, and a, cow ma a mature cow with a calf and a, and a dry mature cow, uh, you see that the requirements for a first calf heifer, for example, it cannot be covered by any of the warm season perennial grasses. What I mean by this is bahia grass and Bermuda grass cannot cover requirements for a first calf heifer, mainly uh, energy. The reason for that for this uh, for this particular class of cattle is that first calf heifer is lactating, has a calf by her side, and is growing, and you want her pregnant again. So there is a high requirement of nutrient demand uh, of that particular animal. Mature cows with a calf, though, they have less requirements, mainly because they are not growing. That's the main the main issue why they don't demand as my, as many nutrients. And at that point, warm season perennials can cover the requirements of that cow, of that cow calf pair but only just on the first stages of growing, of, of growing, mainly a month or a month and a half. After that, when the quality uh, decreases, then the requirements of a cow-calf cow, cow are, not, are not met. Dry cow, basically what, what this graph is telling you, uh, they can get fat on any grass, um, and any, any of those can, can actually cover the requirements of a, of a dry cow, warm season perennials or warm season annuals, and any of those uh, cool season perennials or higher quality grasses are not worthwhile of being used by dry cows because they are too much nutritionally for what they actually actually the cow demands. Re uh, growing animals is the same deal. Uh, 300 pound, uh, three pound, 350 pounds here has, has extremely high requirements that are barely covered in terms of energy by cool season annuals or legumes. A 600 pounds steer, on the other hand, uh, can do a pretty good job with the higher quality forages, but warm season perennials, again, bahia grass, Bermuda grass, blue stems, they do not cover the energy requirements for, uh, for that steer. So something to consider, because uh, at that point in time, we depending on the class of cattle, depending on the physiological stage, uh, and depending on the forage base, the need for supplementation is there. When, what, when I talk about the year-round forage systems, the, the reason that I put this up is just, just for you to think on a, on a yearly basis whenever you are planning how your grazing is going to be. These are three, year, uh, three uh, forage systems that I, evalu I evaluated for several years at the, uh, the Iberia Station for grass-fed beef production. And it goes from a system one, very simple, just Bermuda grass during the summer, hay during the transition period in the fall, and then um, and then ryegrass, uh, but system two and three, they get a little bit more complicated with uh, with some of the summit annuals uh, being used in system, in system three, um, some other pastures incorporated with dalis grass and clovers, and, uh, and clovers also with ryegrass for winter grazing. But my whole point, it, it was to reduce this, this bar here, orange, that is uh, the hay feeding, hay feeding period. 
So uh, what what I you know did, did through the years was try okay try to see how much uh, forage was produced at different point and how I can make as much forage uh, available for the animal throughout uh, the year. I came up obviously with two transition periods, one of them in the spring, uh, April, May, the other one in the fall, October, November, and, and partially December too. So the one thing that I did for, that, that I did evaluate uh, in the spring, um, in the spring transition period was the stockpiling of, uh, of ryegrass and clovers. Um, I did this with heavy steers, 850-pound um, uh, steers, and the stockpiling, as you know, it refers to the, the, the closure of pastures, so you let accumulate grass and you graze it later on in the, in the grazing season. So I closed, uh, I, I closed those pastures in, uh, in mid-February, early March, and, uh, and late March. And obviously the forage allowance, that means the, the amount of dry matter uh, per acre that was present per, uh, per pound of body weight uh, was much higher in the uh, pastures that were closed in mid-February, 2%, nearly a little bit over one and a half for early, um, early March, and a little bit of one uh, for, late, for late March. Uh, I mean, that's, that's basically the, the, what the idea was. Um, in terms of average daily gain, um, again, probably because they were heavy, requirements were lower, remember, than, 600, than a 600-pound 600, 600 steer. Uh, the gains were, were really good, three, uh, around three pounds for all three treatments, and, um, and, and with differences in favor of, uh, of the mid-February closure. For the same reason of the forage allowance, that was greater for the mid-February uh, closure. There were more grazing days. Uh, in that treatment, around 65, um, than on the other two, um, close in early March or or uh, late March. Uh, but again, uh, if you start thinking about it in periods of time where you may need to feed some hay uh, due to lack of forage, dry grass already gone or, or about to be gone, and or, or lower quality and Bermuda grass or Bahia grass not yet ready yet, this type of management can provide more grazing days and reduce uh, hay hay feeding or hay needs. Um, on the other uh, transition period in the in the fall, there were a few more things that that were evaluated. Uh, one of them was stockpile uh, Bermuda grass, uh, stockpile summer annuals, brass, the use of brassicas, uh, planting early and started grazing uh, long before the the ryegrass, and also rye and oats um, with ryegrass to start to try to start the, the grazing uh, season earlier than with ryegrass alone. Um, through the years, we got different uh, different uh, performance of uh, of uh, on the different pastures on stockpile uh, Bermuda grass. Probably was the low, not probably it was the lowest that, that we got, and it depend a lot of a lot of on the year. Uh, if there was too much rain, it was really hard to actually uh, have a good um, performance of of those animals grazing that uh, that Bermuda grass. Dry years or dry fall. Uh, are the best way to go with them. Um, although there is no way to predict, you know, uh, if you're going to have a dry or a, or a, or a wet um, uh, fall. Uh, on, uh, on stockpiling summer annuals, uh, you can expect one, one and a half pounds, one to 175 with brassicas, and we got a, a pretty good gains with, uh, with oats and, and rye and ryegrass on, uh, on early grazing. That brought us to, to Create the, the another grazing system that was uh, that was evaluated also for grass-fed beef, 
and incorporated these these issues. And not only that, but also uh, planting different things. Not only not only no-till, um, like a, a few of the pasture, but also uh, conventional, giving the chance to actually have grass earlier than when the plant was uh, was uh, or the forages were uh, no-till. Getting into uh, more specific uh, type of information and dealing in this case with uh, annual ryegrass. Um, we evaluated Nelson annual ryegrass uh, with uh, four different um, stocking rates um, using 600 pound uh, steers. The, the stocking rates that are evaluated are in this, this column. Um, the, the, the animals were continually stock, stocked. The average daily gains were uh, those in the table from 2.6 for the low stocking rate to 114 to the higher stocking rate. And uh, of course, the grazing period was higher for the low stocking rate compared with the, with the high stocking rate. Um, that's, uh, you know, in the high stocking rate that was overgrazing. Uh, hence, the grazing periods are usually much, much uh, shorter than at low stocking rates. And then I estimate the cost of production uh, based on the figures that are here in the in the red uh, rectangle here, and it came out for uh, 44 cents per pound for the low uh, lower stocking rate, and nearly a pound, uh, nearly I'm sorry, nearly a dollar uh, per pound for the for the high stocking rate. If you estimate, I estimated also the value of gain, and assuming you know we we had the 600 pound steers. Uh, we assume an end grazing for of 800 pounds. Prices, of course, prices can can vary depending on on on, on what we got. But we came out came out with a value of gain of 55 uh, cents per pound. The value of gain, basically, if you have a value of gain that is greater than the cost of production, you make money. If the value of gain is uh, is um, lower, that or smaller than your cost of production, um, you're losing money. Long that's long story short. But um, since the, we had we got this value of gain, the, in, uh, the the ones or the stocking rates that allow us to make some money were the two lowest stocking rates, one and a half and one point eight um, steers steers to the acre. The other two um, we lost money with that. Just to just to give an example on how things can change depending on what you use, uh, using lighter animals, five hundred and twenty pounds. At a second lowest stocking rate that I showed before, 1.8 heads per acre, also continues continuously stock on ryegrass. Uh, we got different these gains, but for a longer period of days, and that gives us a smaller uh, cost of production of 36 cents uh, per pound. On the other hand, when we compare uh, the use of heavy steers, heavier steers, 700 pounds, at a lower stocking rate on ryegrass versus ryegrass plus clover. But using rotational stocking, we were able to get a, uh, extremely good uh, gains and also uh, a decent, pretty decent grazing period. However, the cost of production was was much higher. The main reason is well, number one, we introduced labor um, in the equation whenever we did the rotational system due to moving animals, moving fences, moving waters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, the, la the last uh, the last uh, row here, ryegrass plus clover. Uh, the cost of clover was uh, was also affecting uh, the the final cost of production. The, hence, the the different values that we um, observed. Heat, stress, and nutrition. Uh, and again, as I said, um, we are in Louisiana, so we need to talk about this. 
This table is uh, is uh, full of numbers, but long story short, is what it is is the temperature humidity index. It's uh, is an is an index that THI is an index that is used uh, using relative humidity and and temperature in an equation that will give you a number, and depending on the number, is when the, you can say that the animal is suffering uh, from from heat stress or not. Uh, what it means is that that this uh, light brown color between 75 and 78, uh, you have to be alert. Uh, a little darker between 79 and 83, uh, the animal is in danger of uh, heat stress. And, be, and this darker color, 84 to 90, uh, is an emergency situation. This table or this figure shows uh, the temperature humidity, uh, heat index that we estimated at Iberia Station in, in four consecutive years for the month of June, July, August and September. The lines uh, reflect uh, the mild heat stress is above 75, severe heat stress is above 79, as we saw before in, the, in, this, uh, in this previous graph. So what, what I'm saying with all this is that animals uh, in our conditions were uh, in severe heat stress from six o'clock in the morning down to nine at night. And they cooled down a little bit uh, in, from midnight to, uh, to six o'clock, however, they were still in mild heat stress, and these are for the three month June, July, August. September, on the other hand, is a, it was a little milder, but between again six o'clock in the morning to around nine uh, at night, they were still on mild heat stress, and they were in a, in good conditions uh, at night. Heat, that's that's the main the main issue. Animals need to dissipate heat. So if they don't dissipate heat, uh, as, as, as evidently they, they didn't do during this three of month, there are a lot of, a lot of things that go wrong from the standpoint of nutrition, also from reproduction, but from nutrition, um, absolutely also. Another point that I want to make, I forgot, in the Great Plains, Midwest, you know, it can get hot during the day, but it cool off pretty good during the night. So they can actually dissipate a lot of heat during the night hours. In our condition, that doesn't happen. So what happened with heat stress and nutrition? Uh, when, when we are hot, we start sweating, right? And that's basically the, the response of, the, of our body to uh, maintain temperature of, uh, of, uh, of, the, of the body. Uh, cattle don't have a good sweat gland systems like, like we do, so they need some uh, another way to dissipate heat. And two of the most important ones is uh, by panting and drooling. Well, the problem with that is that if, the, if they increase panting, they increase CO2 or carbon, carbon dioxide uh, expelling, which reduce saliva buffering in uh, the, the reduce saliva buffering. Why, why is important the saliva buffering? Because saliva is actually what maintains, what helps maintains the rumen pH. For microorganisms that attack and digest forages, it's important that the rumen pH stays around neutral, around seven. If, they, if the pH goes down below seven, more acidic conditions, the microbes that digest the cellulose and the other fractions in forages die. And if they die, they are replaced by those that can survive in an acidic condition, but those are not the ones that can digest the cellulose. That's the importance of maintaining a kind of a neutral rumen pH. Drooling was the other th is the other thing that increases during, during heat stress. And if they drool, they lost, they lost, uh, they lost saliva. If they lost saliva, they reduce buffering effect, and the same, the same happens. Also, like happens to us, they reduce feed intake, um, just just because it's a reaction to hot hot weather. 
If they reduce feed intake, they also decrease rumination. Rumination is when, when you see them chewing the cud, that is the, is the name that, that we have for that. They are resting, laying down or standing, and they are just chewing, chewing, and chewing. That's an important, uh, an important thing to do for them because they reduce the particle size of the forage they consume. But also they produce a lot of saliva, a lot of saliva that then is swallowed uh, with, uh, with, that, with that forage, with that boli, and, and gets into the rumen and, and help maintaining a neutral pH. So if all that happens, rumen pH can go down, there will be acidosis problems, and in the case of cows, the milk production is, um, is reduced. So important, very important to provide shade as well, any kind of shade, and provide, and provide water too. This is a, uh, the, the grass finishing uh, uh, animals in the first cycle that, that we evaluated, and these are the type of shades that we, that we used. What happens if you don't provide shade to, to animals? Probably this is the best example uh, that, that you can see. Uh, this was done in Florida, in the Florida Panhandle, uh, with heifers, 920 pounds, and they put them on bahia grass from July 17 to September uh, the 2nd a group with shade, a group with no shade. So the group on sh with shade, they gain nearly half a pound. Those with, without shade, they maintain weight or, or lose, they lost a, a little bit. Um, here at the station, we evaluated um, different forages, but also we evaluated artificial shades versus natural shades. The artificial shade was a, a polypropylene um, cloth that provides 80% uh, shade. A natural was a, were a tree line of oak trees uh, that provide shade for the, for the pastures. Um, first of all, the pastures, uh, Alice clover, pearl millet, Bermuda grass, uh, greater gains on Alice clover, higher quality, uh, pearl millet a little lower, Bermuda grass the lowest. And shades, artificial versus natural, they basically gain the same uh, during the year. Uh, not much differences between the two, which means that probably they were in a comfortable um, uh, environment during that uh, during that period of time. Remember, I mentioned the differences in in lignin concentration or or, or quality between Alicia and the and uh, Jigs and Tifton 85. Um, during four years, uh, we evaluated it with these three um, um, uh, cultivars with 600 pound steers, um, crossbred steers and uh, with artificial shade and uh, those grazing Alicia, they, they, they gain on average uh, a little below three quarters of a pound, while those on Jigs and Tifton 85, uh, a little above a pound per day. This is also a, a, an experiment run in, in Florida, but deals with uh, Pensacola, Bahia grass and three different stocking rates. And as you, we can see, um, gains were around three quarters of a pound with low and medium stocking rate which is basically uh, a little less than um, a little uh, less than a half a heifer uh, per acre. The heifers were 770 pounds uh, body weight. The second, the medium was uh, a heifer and a half, let's say per acre. And this one was uh, close to two and a half um, a heifers. So um, average daily gain, the best they can get, they, they got was a, a three quarter of a pound and a little lower in high. Uh, however, the production per acre was uh, bigger for the high stocking rate, as expected, compared with the uh, with the others. In summary, between and comparison between Bahia grass and Bermuda grass, the current capacity of Bahia grass is lower than Bermuda grass, and the and the average daily gain that you can actually expect of animals grazing 
uh, Bahia grass is lower than Bermuda grass. And, and again, this is basically a general statement uh, on the on the current capacity of the, those pastures as well as the average daily gain that you can expect. As we, we review this, uh, this information, evidently there are moments that you can actually uh, do some supplementation in order to improve the nutritional value of the diet as well as um, cover the requirements of the animals. So uh, the supplementation of uh, variables that you basically need to keep in mind are, first of all, you need to know the forages you have, the supplements you have, the nutritive value of both as well as the cattle requirements and when the cattle requirements are going to change at what moment of the year. You have to strive, you have to try to match the forage nutrient supply with the cattle requirements. And of course, understand that a supplement can do different things. It can supply uh, or it can cover a nutrient deficiency. It can add the nutritive value to the diet. It can replace forage and that is a use, very useful way to or increase stocking rate, for example, in a pasture or provide nutrition when there is a lack of forage. Um, but most importantly, even though you know all the three uh, uh, statements before, you need to adjust and observe. Things can change. We have weather that can be affecting one way or another. So uh, paying attention as, as to how things are going is, is important, uh, no matter what um, you're doing. A very good example of the of effect of uh, of us uh, of um, of uh, adding quality to a diet is uh, is this is this one. Um, these are cows that were consuming a very low quality hay, five percent crude protein. Remember, below eight uh, percent, you are affecting the rumen microbes. So the animal can actually eat one point six nine percent body weight of uh, of hay. With a rumen and retention time, that means that the hay stays in the rumen for up to seventy five hours. Basically, because as I mentioned before, the microbes are not happy, they don't have enough protein, they cannot digest the way they should that hay. Just by adding a, a pound and a three quarter of a cottonseed meal, the, there was a, a decrease in rumen retention time of 32% down to 56 hours, and the intake increase, increased 27% up to 2.15 um, body weight. So, we are improving the, the the protein balance in the in the rumen and for the animal, but also we are increasing energy intake since the animal is actually increasing intake of that hay, uh, 27%. Here at the, at the at the station, we ran a we ran an experiment where we evaluated uh, the use of cotton um, corn gluten feed um, supplemented at half a percent body weight, and. Um, and our idea was basically see, okay, if we feed that supplement, that same amount of supplement per head uh, at different time of the day, what happened? Can we affect somehow intake? Can we affect somehow uh, digestion? Well, um, the, con the control treatment is the one that didn't receive any corn gluten feed, only the ryegrass. When we supplemented the corn gluten feed in the morning, we reduced dry matter intake of annual ryegrass, all right? Mainly what we were doing, we were disturbing the animal during the grazing, uh, a grazing portion of the day, an important one in the morning, and we feed the supplement. The, the supplement helped them and, and they, get, they get kind of full, they, they, they were not too hungry, so intake actually decreases. However, at noon, we were not affecting the grazing bout in the morning or the grazing bout in the afternoon, and we actually increase the dry matter intake of animal, animal uh, ryegrass by supplementing in the morning. Most importantly, too, the other thing we did was to we we increased the retention time, retention time of that annual ryegrass in the rumen. 
Why is this important? The main reason is, and, and you probably have seen it, if once you put the animal, the animals grazing annual ryegrass, uh, they are going to eat a, a lot, but they are going to also eliminate on the other side of the animal. It will come out uh, quite a bit. Well, by increasing the retention time, we actually increasing the digestibility of the annual ryegrass that the animal is consuming. Hence, we improve the, the nutrient balance also uh, at that point. So the time that you actually uh, supplement is also important and may affect what the response of that annual ryegrass is. Another experiment that we ran was using also heifers uh, at, a, at a, uh, a thousand, around a thousand pounds per acre of a stocking rate. And we supplemented with ground corn or soybean hulls at a half a percent body weight or 1% body weight per day. Um, the, why these two supplements? Basically, uh, corn, it provides energy and is the best one probably uh, in, in the form of starch. On the other hand, soybean hulls provide energy in the form of a highly digestible fiber. So there are two different sources of energy um, that we were evaluating at, at two different levels. Average daily gains, in summary, average daily gains of those of the animals grazing uh, annual ryegrass, marshall, and non-supplemented, the control, and the, those supplemented with half, one or one or half percent body weight or one percent body weight of corn and soybean hulls, they gain pretty good, above two and a half pounds, uh, nearly three in some cases. Um, so gains were really well, good. Empty, uh, final, final body weight, they were all above uh, 800 pounds and we were shooting for 60% of the body weight of our cattle, which was around 780, so they are, they are all good. Now, the differences came when we started measuring dry matter intake. Well, the red bar in all, in all the red segment of the bar in all, in all the, these bars reflect dry matter intake of annual ryegrass. The ones in color is the supplement that is added to the dry matter intake uh, of the animal. So as you can see, as we increase the amount of supplement, regardless of the supplement, corn or soybean hulls, uh, as we increase the amount, the amount of uh, ryegrass that was consumed decreased. So what, what does it mean that if through supplementation, one thing we can do is reduce the demand for annual ryegrass of those animals? which means that we have more ryegrass available in the pasture, which means that we can, doing it right, increase the stocking rate of those pasture, put a little bit more animals uh, per acre than what we have before. When we come to feed efficiency, the feed efficiency changes from six, uh, around seven uh, to one with half a percent body weight of corn up to nearly 28, 29. Uh, pounds of supplement per pound of gain for soybean hulls. So this is another issue that you need to take into consideration. It's actually the feed efficiency of the supplement that you are actually using. Mo much more efficient, a half a percent body weight of ground corn compared with um, higher level of supplementation of any of the two, corn at 1% or soybean hulls at 1%. I mentioned that I wanted to talk about brassicas. Brassicas has been a, that has been a, um, um, uh, an important issue in the last in the last few years, uh, they they are used as cover crops in um, in uh, in many uh, crop systems. Um, we try them uh, uh, as a, as a forage, and uh, and we got uh, you know we got a, a relatively good results. Um, but there are reasons for not getting excellent results. We have a kale, for example, this one. We have a um, radish for a radish and turnips. So um, 
first of all, the nutritive value of this. Uh, there are several issues to make, make the point to. They are very low in dry matter, uh, which means that they have a lot of water. Okay, they are around 10% at the beginning of the grazing season, 10% uh, dry matter. Crude protein is excessively high, more than 20%, 20, 20 something percent crude protein, uh, regardless of the of the of the type of brassicas that we are talking about. The bulbs of the turnips actually they have pretty good concentration of protein too. NDF, remember cellulose, semicellulose lignin, uh, related to intake is very low, which means that the animal should be able to consume a lot. Acid detergent fiber, also very low, which means that the animal can digest this, this stuff really well, and it's extremely high on uh, TDN2, above or around uh, 7%. There are a few issues that I want to, go to, to let you know that they are on the negative side. They are high in sulfur. Sulfur can be a mineral that can cause a, a few problems with interactions with others and absorption of other minerals, so it's something to consider. Some of them have a few uh, uh, secondary compounds um, in the case of, um, in the case of uh, especially kale. It's high in glucosinolates, uh, which reduce iodine, which is another mineral uptake and hence dry matter intake. And forgot to mention, they are very, very, very high in, uh, in sugars. So um, in theory, they are good. However, if you look at the literature, but, but you, you have to go back to the 1940s, 1950s and 60s, there are a lot of uh, data that shows that these brassicas can cause a lot of different health disorders, uh, bloat, pneumonia, anemia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, the, you have them listed in the in the in the slide. Uh, polio, um, nitrate poisoning. Um, so, however, there hasn't been in the last I don't know five ten years a lot of reports of of issues uh, of animals grazing grazing. Um, grazing brassicas. I'm not saying they won't happen. I'm just saying that there hasn't been too many uh, too many reports of, of having problems with animals eating this. Maybe because we are careful on how we do it, but uh, it's something that I wanted to make the point that the, even though there are a lot of health disorders that are mentioned because of animals grazing brassicas, if we are careful, we can actually um, um, do, do well on, on them. I did a couple of uh, work, one with cows, um, one with uh, open uh, mature cows um, for different reasons, mainly for grazing behavior and uh, some uh, rumen information that I wanted to, to collect. And um, uh, they did well, they gained, um, this, is a 60, this was a 60 day grazing period of around 40 pounds gain with a little bit of, um, of uh, increasing the, in, uh, also in um, body condition. Um, you can see them probably in the pictures that they have, a, the ma their mouth is, is open and kind of they look like they are fighting with what they are eating. The main reason is they are eating the bulbs of the turnips or the radish. Um, that's, uh, if you remember, I mentioned it before, choking, ingestion of, of bulbs can be a problem, especially in young animals. Uh, these girls didn't have an issue, but they actually, they actually fought pretty good with those uh, bulbs. That's another problem. Once they, they find the bulbs, they can actually go for that rather than the foliage, than, rather than the leaves of the, of the brassica. So keep in mind that. With, uh, with uh, growing animals um, in, on the grass finishing uh, program, uh, we also evaluated um, uh, brassicas. And on average, we got around a pound of gain uh, for those uh, tiers. And this average probably goes down really, really quickly because of the first year. The gains were really 
were, were really low. And the main reason, they, not really low, but they were lower than the other two years. And the main reason it was we had a fall, uh, a wet fall. Uh, it rained a lot. It was muddy. It was nasty. And uh, evidently the gains, uh, they didn't do well. Anyway, we grazed uh, with uh, with polytapes. Um, in this picture up here, the, the two pictures in, the, in on the top of the slide, uh, before, I mean, after and before um, grazing uh, those those pastures, just basically give you an idea of what, um, what they look like. So a few tips if you're grazing brassicas. I mean, number one, don't put animals that are hungry um, right away on brassicas, just to avoid any kind of possible issues uh, that I mentioned before. Um, train them uh, to eat the, the brassicas, giving them a mile or two for a few days, uh, for a couple of weeks, 10 days, a couple of weeks, until, until they get used to it. The rest of the time, while they are doing early, early grazing, feed hay and supplement if, uh, if needed. I believe that strip grazing is necessary front and back. Uh, main reason for that is that, as I said, you need to let them eat the, the let them eat the main, mainly the forage, the, the leaves. I mean, um, so that um, so that they don't reach the to the to the bulbs, because uh, if obviously if they pick up the bulb, uh, the plant the plant is dead. Uh, you need to leave a stubble height of uh, four around five five inches at least five inches for turnips and radishes and uh, kale a little bit more if you want regrowth and, and refeed, um, regrace or grace again those uh, those pastures. I wanted to tell a last, last slide dealing with nitrate poisoning because it, 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 it was listed for the brassicas and you probably have heard a lot also on uh, that may happen with some animals. Um, I'm not saying that it won't happen, but it's the same issue that with the healthy disorders of brassica. Um, there's, there are not, there has been reports of nitrate poisoning because of consuming uh, some animals, but not as many as um, in the past. And there are several people, several groups, research groups working on this um, uh, and trying to figure it out uh, the issues. But one of the main issues is again that a lot of the data comes from the 50s and 60s. That's number one. Number two is uh, they they were they were um, artificially fed nitrates um, to the animals. So a lot of nitrate was was placed all of a sudden into the rumen, and that's when the reaction or the or the poisoning occurred. If you have animals grazing uh, uh, forages that that have nitrates, um, there are ways to actually to actually control uh, this this issue or this this possible problem of nitrate poisoning. Uh, number one, grazing uh, cattle graze on, over a long period of time during the day, right? So it's not that all of a sudden all the nitrates are present in the room. The low uh, intake rate also also means low release rate of the nitrates into the room, and so the risk is lower. What we do know is that fresh forages also release nitrate slower than, than hay. In, in this example, hay. So if, if hay, you know that hay has a higher concentr high concentration of nitrates, it's much more uh, dangerous than fresh forages. Uh, the concentration of those nitrates is much higher uh, on dry on dry forage, on dry hay. As I, as I said before, brassicas has a lot of sugars, which helps offsetting the problem with the nitrates, okay? Nitrates basically is nitrogen, it's a form of nitrogen. Nitrogen can react react with the sugars, and and they are they are used by the microbial um, in the room microbes in the rumen to synthesize microbial protein. So the high concentration of sugar can actually be a good thing to uh, fight the the issue of excess nitrogen because of brassicas um, in uh, consumption. Uh, 
grazing behavior. Um, if you pay attention and you have them, if you have cattle grazing uh, um, um, some animals, they will graze from the top down. Okay, they will start with the leaves at the top and they will go down. Um, um, you know, as as the grazing the grazing uh, hours or the grazing days uh, progress. The leaves on the top are the are have the 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 um, the lower concentration of nitrates. The stems that are situated at the at the bottom of the plant are the ones that have the greater concentration of nitrates. So as long as they eat the top leaves and the top stems, the higher of nitrate poison is also goes down. One way to do that and allow them to select the the top leaves and the top stems is managing those um, those uh, salmon annuals with uh, with low stocking rate. Uh, with a lower stock a lower stocking rate allow the animal to to actually select. Um, the other way is to feed some energy uh, supplementation like cracked corn or, or if you are careful also ground corn. Uh, again, because the energy, the starch present in the grain can help, um, can help um, offset the issue of excess nitrogen because the microbes are going to be uh, using that nitrogen and that excess carbons that come from with the starch on the, on the supplement in order to synthesize microbial protein. So, I'm not saying not be careful. I'm just with with nitrate poisoning. I'm just saying there are ways to to uh, to try to reduce it as much as possible. And at the same time, um, we we even though we know that there are levels of uh, nitrate poisoning, um, is is hard to reach those values when the animal is grazing uh, and or being supplemented as indicated um, in this slide. So my final thoughts. Um, you need to think on a on a on a year-round basis. You need to think on a on a forage system for the for the entire year. That will help you find the gaps where you have them in terms of quality or quantity. You have to use forages that are adapted to your conditions and to your management. Keep in mind the different nutritive value of grasses, legumes, and within a grass in particular, uh, those are also important. Cattle nutrient requirements is not the same a first calf heifer than a mature cow um, with a with a calf. Um, requirements are much greater in, in younger animals than old uh, mature animals. Your grazing strategy will be a key on how to use your forages and how good the productivity of those pastures can be. So stocking rate and stocking method are critical. Uh, you are the ones that need to decide what is better for your conditions. And keep in mind the idea of limiting or hourly grazing of uh, certain forages just to get the animals adapted. Um, to grazing or the, and the rumen microbes actually to a new diet. Supplementation is also important if needed and depending on the objectives of, of, uh, of the, that you have for your production system, uh, a supplement can help you do different things. As I said before, cover a nutrient require, cover a, a nutrient deficit, but also can help you maybe increase in the stocking rate of a pasture. Um, there are a few things that you can do with uh, supplementation that can uh, can impact uh, the productivity of your of your farm or ranch. So with that, I would like to thank all the um, organizations that provided funds for uh, all the different uh, research project projects uh, conducted. And with that, I'm open to questions. All right, thank all you, right, Dr. Thank you, Dr. It's echoing a lot. Hopefully, it's not on ours. I'm going to share my screen. And you don't have any questions just yet, so if y'all have questions, please get them into the Q&A box. 
Jason, if you don't mind um, just checking on that while I share my screen here. Maybe. Okay, Jason, can y'all see the survey link? Yes, ma'am, it's there. Okay, thank you. So if y'all don't mind taking three to five minutes or so, um, please do a survey on the Beef Brunch series and our webinar today with Dr. Scaglia. The way to do that is to open the camera on your phone and view this little QR code that's over here on the right. A little banner will pop up on the top and you can click that to go to the survey. I'm checking my phone to see if we have any questions text in. I don't see any. Jason, do you have any on your end? No, ma'am, not at the time. All right, Dr. Skagley, it sounds like you get off pretty easy today on no questions, but um, if y'all do have questions for him, um, you can send them my way and I can direct them to him. My contact information will be listed um, below the video. It is uh, when we get it posted online, it will be posted on YouTube as well as our Beef Brunch website, which is lsuagcenter.com slash beef brunch. We have also gone into podcast format. So when I get this uh, recording done, we will post it into a podcast expect that probably tomorrow to go up. We are on Spotify and we're on Google Podcasts. We're waiting for permission um, and approval to be on Apple. So if you've not done so, you can also check out our news updates. Those go out every other Monday. More information for that is also on the Beef Brunch website. And our next webinar will be on Tuesday, September 8th at 10.30 a.m. That will be Dr. Christine Navarre talking about internal parasite management in our cattle. Jason, did any questions pop up? No, ma'am. All right, Dr. Scaglia, thank you again for today and thank you all for joining us. All right, thank you, bye.